You're listening to the Exhibitionist Podcast, hosted by Nicola Reader and brought to you by InspiringExhibitors.com and ProExtra, a wholly owned subsidiary of 12th Man Solutions Limited. Hi there and welcome to episode 24 of the Exhibitionist Podcast. I'm your host, Nicola Reader, and as always, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for listening in. Very shortly, we're going to hand over to our conversation with Andrew Higginbotham, who's a sales director at GES. And Andy will be talking to us about stand design, but also about how to use events strategically and some of the tips and tricks that he's learnt in decades working around the exhibition industry. Before we get to that, though, I just wanted to touch on something that I was inspired by from a brilliant feature in the latest edition of Exhibition News magazine. And that's an article by... Jill Hawkins, who's a director of Aniseed PR. And it focuses on why is the exhibition industry so obsessed with visitor numbers? And this came on the back of us starting to work with clients getting ready for events and exhibitions that are kicking off in Q1 of 2020. So we're sitting down and we're talking to clients and it's happened a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, where the first question we ask them is, what do you want to get out of this exhibition? What does success look like for you? And I've mentioned it before, but a number of those clients have said, we just want to meet loads of new contacts. Well, for a start, that's not very measurable. But is it actually realistic as well? So there does seem to be an emphasis from exhibitors on meeting lots of people at a show. And I think in some ways, it's just a very easy objective to say, yep, we're investing money because we want new business. Therefore, that must mean we have to meet lots of people to do that. But as we stated before, there's an industry industry statistic, which is easy for me to say, uh, that suggests about 16 to 20% of a total population, visitor population, that is, at a show, will be in a position to buy from an exhibitor at any point in time. So even if you speak to loads of people, only 16 to 20% of them are really going to be in any position to buy from you as an organisation. The phrase that really struck a chord with me in Jill's brilliant article, um, and I'm going to quote this, was exhibitions are about making business contacts and lasting relationships. So why do we measure their worth directly after the show when we still don't know their full impact? The point there being exhibitions are about making business contacts and lasting relationships. If you speak to loads of people at your stand, there's a good chance that 80% of them will never fall into that category of making long-lasting, sustainable and profitable business relationships. They're actually just a waste of time And that's okay. People are quite surprised when we say it's 16 to 20% of your audience that will probably buy from you because it feels like quite a small number. But we have a client getting ready to go to a big industry show over in uh, Hanover in a couple of weeks at which there'll be 130,000 people. Even if they spoke to the full 16 to 20% of that total visitor audience who are in a position to buy from them, it's still far more customers than they could deal with based on the resource that they've got. And therefore, what we're trying to help them do before they go to Emo is think about actually who do we want to do business with? Who are the right kind of clients for us? How do we get those meetings in the diary before we get there? Who are the people who are most likely to buy with us from us most quickly? Who do we want to build partnerships with, supply partnerships, etc.? So it's really thinking about the quality of those meetings and those relationships and those connections rather than the quantity. And I think... Jill is very fair in, and balanced in her article in talking about uh, exhibition organisers using the number and the quantity of visitors as a way of discussing and, and celebrating success of their show. And that's because that's kind of what exhibitors have wanted to hear for a long time. I certainly know when I was working for big corporate companies and we were doing exhibitions, we wanted to back the shows that had lots and lots of people going, perhaps when we were less aware of actually needing to find the quality rather than the quantity. And a lot of exhibitors are still very much in this mindset of we need to meet lots of people. And if exhibitors are saying that's the important number to us, then that's what event organisers are going to measure it on. But it does feel like there's a change happening in the industry now. And exhibitors, as well as event organisers, are really keen to think about, okay, how do we measure success in a different way? How do we find a way to talk about those sustainable, long-lasting business relationships that are actually creating sales transactions? And that, I think, is another really key point that Jill makes in her article, where she talks about advertising and digital marketing are both measured using far more complex metrics 
that calculate fully the ROI of the campaign, but we don't do it in exhibitions yet. And maybe we don't do it because it feels like a little bit too hard work. We don't have the tools in place. We don't have the processes. We don't go through the right steps in terms of planning for a show to actually then at the end of it be able to think, okay, have we got the information that we need to be able to measure more than just the number of people that we've seen or the number of people who have turned up? And that's, again, also feels like the missing bit of the equation. So shout out to anybody who thinks they have a brilliant platform or software or method or process for being able to really clearly measure ROI for exhibitors and for event organizers. We would love to have you on the show talking about what those metrics are and how exhibitors can think more strategically um, about how they measure ROI. So measuring ROI is certainly not something that is new to the exhibitions industry. If you've read this week's blog over on uh, the Inspiring Exhibitors website, you'll know I sat down with James Musgrave this week, who is the head of the UK Centre for Events Management over at Leeds Beckett University. And he's been around exhibitions and events for decades. And we talked about all that had changed and we talked about all that hasn't changed in the industry and in both our experiences one thing that hasn't changed is we just don't measure events brilliantly um, and I think that's really a key issue that we think it can't be done we think it's too much hard work therefore we don't do it so this is really a shout out from me if you are an exhibitor or an event organizer that's planning for Q4 this year or going into 2020 please do give us a shout if you need some help thinking about how you structure those smart objectives really early on that then enable you to measure an effective ROI at the back end of your show. It can be done, it's not easy, but it takes um, a little bit of planning up front. So hopefully that's been useful and I would encourage you to go and read uh, Jill's article in Exhibition News. I found it really useful and um, really honest, which was great to see that reality. So moving on, I will hand over now to our conversation with Andrew. As I say, he's sales director over at GES. Apologies if there are some slight little glitches on the sound quality. As you'll hear from the conversation, Andy was sat in a beautiful building, but those big old buildings don't always necessarily lend themselves to the best sound quality. So enjoy the conversation. So on this week's edition of the Exhibitionist podcast, we are delighted to have invited Andy Higginbotham, the sales director for GES, onto the show. So Andy, welcome to the show. Hello, nice to see you. And uh, for those of you who obviously can't see what I can see at the moment, Andy is in the most amazing surroundings with gears and cogs and all sorts of things in an old mill. And it looks um, fascinating. I wish it was as, as exciting where I'm working. So uh, nice location, Andy. It is. It's a lovely place to live. Grade two, listed, dilapidated, a bit tatty, but we, we, we very much like it. You just have to be very, very careful because I'm six foot three and there's lots and lots of low stuff in this house. So it's easy to smash your head on poles and gears and cogs and anything so um yeah looks amazing <laughs> it's a it's a quite nice place but it hurts <laughs> i like it i like it so before we get into um too much talking about kind of stand design and um areas that you can help exhibitors which is the main um theme of today's conversation just give me a little bit of background about your experience andy and the current role that you're working in yeah cool um so long, long ago, I was a designer. Well, I, I trained as a designer. I did a degree in 3D design, interior and architecture, or interior architecture really was the, the, the core of it. So I'm a, I'm a trained designer, but after a few years, I was selling things rather than designing things, which was fine. And it was a mixture of the two. So I went straight into events effectively, never really done anything else. So exhibitions being the core of that. So I worked for a small company for six, seven years. Then I worked for a very, very big company, biggest in the industry, Silver Knight. Then I went back to a smaller company and helped to grow that. And then I'm now working for GES. So I've, I've been quite lucky to see the, the big and small of the industry, both in terms of client size, as well as the operational sort of size of how, how stuff works, and how stuff gets delivered. Lots of work with agencies. So I'm, I'm quite exposed to the, the more brand-based rather than MDF-based side of the industry, which is obviously quite a nice balance between the two. Um, so and, and yeah, it's been a commercial uh, role really all the way through with obviously Exhibitions have been the core, live events, experiential coming off that for obvious reasons of the way the market is developed, but also TV, museums, sat in a room that looks like a museum. Museums has been fantastic over the years, not so much now, but, uh, but lots and lots of museum and visitor interaction, visitor experience work uh, worldwide. So that's been good fun. And lots of other stuff that spins off those that people don't really talk about. But, you know, uh, retail is a fantastic sector that 
cross-pollinates from it exhibiting really, really well. So I have been lucky to work with companies that have tried and, and indeed succeeded in going into those other areas. So, yeah, my, my current role as um, a GS uh, sales director is effectively a couple of years ago, uh, we started up a, a new venture, which was called Show Ready. And that's effectively a, 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 effectively a packaged, pre-designed range of exhibition stands to help uh, not only uh, exhibitors coming out of Shell Scheme and going into space only for the first time, but also we have lots of uh, exhibitors that we work with who are large-scale exhibitors, but they need the smaller option while they crack on with the bigger stand. So the ability there is to scale up and down and keep brand continuity, lots of dialogue. People who are, who are time poor obviously love it because it's very quick to market. So it's a very interesting progression in those terms because it's almost back to basics in terms of what really, really works well on a sort of sharpened pencil uh, approach to, to, to using a few square meters sometimes, but very, very effectively. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a rounded approach which has brought me here. <laughs> Very good. And um, as people, regular listeners uh, to the podcast and also readers of the blog will know, um, we were recently over at the Game of Thrones exhibition in yeah. um, Belfast. Yes, I am throwing that one in again, but I believe that was a, a GES uh, yeah. delivery as well of that project. So um, really, really interesting time we had we had over there. So it's and when I found out that it was GES that were doing it, it was um, it was just interesting to see the, the scope of everything that you guys as a company get involved in. Yeah, it is. It's a fantastic um, project. It's come off the back of several others. We did the Avatar touring worldwide show, uh, Harry Potter is the other obvious one that was the first one. And there are others in foot all the time. So we have a, a fantastic GES, US-based um, approach GES events. Um, and they do some amazing, I would call that experiential work, even though it's a bit more than that, actually. It brings in retail, it brings in all sorts. So as, as a venture, it's a, a, a fantastic extension of some of the other slightly more mundane things we do brought together um, as one sort of cohesive lump of experiential and it is really really good so uh, I think they'll that it will continue it will tour it will grow it will, it will move so yeah um, obviously tied into whatever is, is currently very much um, media wise on trend but uh, but as a business it's a fantastic fantastic experience yeah and I think that was the point we were um, we were making to kind of listeners and readers when we were talking about it was just thinking about some of those consumer exper experiential points and how do you bring some of those elements through into, as you say, what can be seen as a little bit more of a traditional, more formal B2B environment. Well, what were the things that, that really we loved and we were buzzing about that actually you could see come into life in an exhibition hall and that I think for you as a company is probably where that breadth and that experience um, is really crucial to working with exhibition clients. Absolutely, because whether you're spending two or three thousand pounds on a shell scheme conversion or a million pounds on a stand at Mobile World Congress or anything in between, doesn't really matter. You've, you've really got to think of the visitor experience, but also the memory they take away. The memory could be a smell. It could be a texture. It could be a piece of interaction on the stand. It could be a person, of course. You know, People do buy off people, but they also buy off emotion. So you may take away a lot of uh, pride. You may take away a lot of envy, a lot of greed. They're all really good buying levers that you know, work really, really well in a 3D environment where you've got all those at least five senses going. So, um, yeah, you're right. Um, where you actually, if you think like a visitor, you'll, you'll probably walk away from the show with more tangible ROI. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's kind of our whole philosophy when we're talking to like, just, just put yourself really in the visitor's shoes. Absolutely. And it's easily forgotten. And you, you have some, I won't name them, but you, there's some very, very experienced, big money spending exhibitors in the world in this country, certainly, who, who don't do that and perhaps wonder why their campaigns don't, you know, they might be successful in one terms, but they may not succeed in pure monetary terms or even sort of general ROO and ROI terms because they're, they're not thinking like a visitor, they're thinking uh, like a marketer. And, and it's not quite the same thing, obviously. Absolutely, absolutely. And so thinking of stand design, when we work with clients, it's um, very often where people spend most of their time and most of their money when they're getting ready for a trade show. But going to the very basics of you've decided which show you want to go to, you're now at that point of thinking, how much floor space do I need? Shall I go shell? Shall I go space only? What do I do? What are the first things that an exhibitor should be thinking through before they decide what the right space is for them and whether that is a shell or whether it's just, just space only? Yes, yeah, it's a good starting question really, isn't it? Because you are investing in a show. You're... you're it's like buying a house in a way, isn't it? You're buying some real estate, then you're going to decide what to build on it. So I have regular experiences where people have not got enough space for what they, what they feel they need to do, maybe not what they want to do, what they need to do. 
I'm certainly the other way around. Where I have, even just yesterday, I was speaking to somebody who probably had booked too much space and they're now struggling to find the budget to fill it. Um, they'll either end up with something which is out of balance and just looks as if they, you know, one of the lorries didn't turn up, or they'll they'll look up with something which is very low quality because you have that price design quality triangle, that conundrum of you know pick any two that you see on LinkedIn all the time. It's very true. It works very very um, proficiently really in our industry. So. Really, if you book too much space, you're going to struggle to fill it. But if you book, don't book enough, you're going to probably have too many staff on the stand. Likely, no one will get on. So the first real conundrum is what to book in terms of space. Position is obviously key as well, because obviously um, it may well be the case that the most fantastic position in a certain show is near the entrance, but not necessarily, because you know very rarely do I walk into an exhibition when I'm visiting or show walking for whatever reason and stop straight away. Um, not necessarily, unless I've been queuing outside where I might want a coffee or something, you know, might be a bit tired. So sometimes people get very, very hot of that position in a hall. Uh, depending on the show, it can be vital. And on some shows, it doesn't matter in the slightest because the show is so small that everybody will pretty much see everything. So that's probably one of the first dis decisions is amount of space and position. In terms of shell or, or space only, there is a general underlying um, trend let's call it where people start off with on the sort of exhibition incline you see uh, what i'm saying where they start off with say a pop-up or a banner stand and a shell scheme and migrate through shell scheme enhancement through to maybe packages such as show ready or, or others and then go through eventually maybe to design and build and then on to something you know maybe they're you know building a worldwide program obviously that's rare when people go right to the scale but a lot of people move up and down that scale um, for the wrong or right reasons and uh, normally the reason is they've run out of room, so they can't do as much on their three before shell scheme anymore, so they're upgrading. Um, but very often it's because they're either, um, they, they've become almost uninvested in the show and they, they want to try something more, maybe take one more shot at the show, uh, maybe move in the show at the same time, going back to point number one, where they're sort of using the show to actually almost generate new business around the show and actually you know, the investment is there or in the change rather than the, the throw of the dice, let's call it. Um, but a lot of the time, um, the migration from shell to space can, can obviously be for the right reason, but occasionally you do find people who've maybe taken that space only jump and not maximized it. Not that they haven't spent enough money, but maybe they haven't taken enough time. And it, it, you know, the three things that we find that on show ready, for example, as well as many other package options, I'm sure, are that there are three, if you like, um, categories of people that come to us uh, or uh, that want the service that we offer. The people that are time poor, um, the people that are uh, experienced poor, so they just haven't been through that process before, or obviously the people who, who are budget poor in their terms and think they're going with the cheaper option for only that reason. The mixture of those three is usually the best reason to actually move on up the scale, is to actually get more, literally get more than you thought you could achieve, which is a nice phrase, sounds lovely from a marketing point of view, it actually does mean something, because if you get more than you think you can achieve, it's a bit like getting a free something when you buy a something. It's, it's that added value all the time, isn't it? So um, I think the migration into, into space only is certainly the, the, the key for us in terms of seeing exhibitors grow through the chain. But there are some fantastic exhibitors who've only ever taken shelter and do very, very well at the shows they attend. So from what you're saying, I think it makes sense in terms of if somebody's... Um, kind of new to exhibiting, taking a shell scheme, because sometimes it can seem a little bit safer and a lot of those decisions and, and things that you could get wrong, like walls and electrics and all that kind of stuff is, is managed for you and so it's slightly less risky. You move up to a space only then when you've grown and that you feel more comfortable and confident and, and that seems to make sense. But are there companies that move from space only back to shell and why would they maybe consider doing that? Yeah, there are. Um... And there are a few reasons. One is that you might be maybe uh, under pressure from, from your peers or your seniors to maybe spend less. It's a simple one. Spend less this year. You know, we, we want to do an extra show. So spend less on this show. Split your 20 grand in two and do two 10 grand spend shows. That's a total budget. They might have to include the space as well. So there's a tangible sort of budget-based reason why you might be spending less. And even uh, moving back to shell scheme is, is a, a natural extension of spending less. Um, another may be that you've booked late and there is no space only plots available only the shell scheme locations in a certain show might be available but you, but you still really want to have an attendance at that show so that your, your hand may be forced it might be that with, even with friendly helpful organizers there may just not be a spot for you in the in the right location or or indeed um, some shows only have areas that are only shell space which is what i was driving at um, 
But there are other reasons as well. You, you may um, want to test a market uh, and you may just want to throw, you know, in, again, in sped a bit similar to point number one, uh, you might want to spend a little bit less money on more shows and actually spread it over several shows ready for the next year to define which one proved, you know, best ROI. Therefore, it's almost like an investment test just to see what works best. Um, or again, it might go back to one of those three reasons. You might have a new staff member who's only ever uh, in a marketing team who, who maybe has only ever worked on shell schemes and their comfort zone means that they get a lot out of shell scheme and maybe it's a wise move to keep them for that first year, for example, in that comfort zone. Uh, up the prowess of the shell scheme by using the best enhancements you can and actually do it for almost personal reasons so or, or um, you know manpower reasons so I think there can be a variety of reasons but we do see quite a lot of big corporates I've recently had you know companies such as BASF and Toshiba who've come back to shell scheme uh, sorry who've come back to show ready from full-scale space only and the reason is they do want to concentrate on that bigger show later in the year so they want the the snap to option at certain events to actually take the pressure off and make it a, a seamless, simple process, which is the reason why we started it, or one of the reasons. So mm -hmm. yeah, again, sometimes that can be a really a quality business reason behind something that really that looks quite aesthetic. And the thing that I think I would pick out from that that um, we often talk with our clients ar around is it being a proactive choice rather than something you're forced into. So be realistic about what would you, you need to do something well give yourself enough time to do it and then you shouldn't have to compromise on a budget you shouldn't have to compromise on what's left on the show floor or how many people you take or what it looks like it's being really honest up front about what are we doing this show for how much do we need to spend on it what space do we need and actually if you don't have those things available you don't have the time you don't have the experience you don't have the the people you don't have the money maybe think about whether exhibiting is even the right thing for you to be doing yeah that's right, exactly. And there's, a, there's an old rule of thumb, which I think might be a bit out of date these days, but it's still worth mentioning that people should generally spend the same, certainly on space only, the same on filling the standards they did on buying the space. Yeah. So I think that it's not a straight line graph. That definitely doesn't work at the very, very small scale. And without a doubt, it doesn't work at, you know, 250 square meters plus. It just, it just would, the maths just wouldn't really work out for most, um, most customers, most exhibitors. But one thing I do think is that the elephant in the room, which is budget, is very very often in our industry um and a bit wider than our industry as well it, you almost don't want to talk about it because there's a certain level of embarrassment we're not very good at talking about money as a species and it it, it 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 definitely comes out as a problem with exhibiting sometimes it is part of the brief it's not an optional extra in my view even if it's a, a, a low estimate from a from an exhibitor it helps enormously as long as you're talking to somebody you trust in terms of as a supplier then i think the, the trust element overrides it and vocalizing a budget or a budget range is massively helpful for the, for the designer of the company who's you're going to be working with how, how on earth do they start um, unless you're talking about an absolutely price pointed packaged product where you can treat it like a price list and say right that equals that is that too much no we'll go for that and, yeah. and there's a it's a different starting point but i think you know budgets often talked about as being something that's um, a bit of a, a pain really because people exhibitors don't like to talk about it I think some do. People like to buy, but they don't like to be sold to. That's yeah. the difference. There's another great phrase that applies to our industry fantastically well. Uh, and they yeah. do, you know, they do buy off emotion. If they see something that they can, they didn't think they could afford, that's a fantastic trigger for them to genuinely get more out of their experience. Um, you know, I, I don't really do that many stands. I don't think these days, um, or we as a company really, where they're one-offs. We usually see people again, or we've seen them before, and that's brilliant because we want to make the sustainability the economic sustainability of the industry is just as important as the uh, ecological sustainability of the industry and the social side you know we want mm -hmm. exhibitors who succeed get more out of it stay within it grow it so it's um you know there are some moral reasons there as well yeah and, and it's um frustrating sometimes when you talk to an exhibitor who has just spent ten thousand pounds on booking some space and then they say yeah and i've now got a thousand pounds to activate that how do i do it and you just think you just kind of wasted ten thousand pounds because with a thousand pounds space you know what are you going to do with a thousand pounds now to bring that to life and people come to us and say how can you save me money and, and that's not what we're here to do but exhibitions are big expensive time consuming tiring events and if you're not serious right. about investing in it then actually you've got to think whether it's the right tactic it's it's not something you're going to save money on it's not it's not that's that right. sort of a tactic that's right and it may be that they've got they've fallen into that with the best intentions because it's not always a, a moment of sort of almost stupidity it's almost sometimes naivety 
you know, back yeah. to that lack of experience thing that I was talking about before. And we find that quite a lot where maybe just being the person who spends the extra half an hour with the client to actually help them out of the hole is the thing that keeps that client with you for 20 years. That yeah. does happen. And yeah. people do remember that effort. So, you know, some people don't have the time to spend that effort. If you have the time to spend the effort in my book, it definitely comes back to, uh, to help you. So um, yeah, I think some exhibitors can fall into that trap and think I just don't have enough money left. Yeah. Sometimes it's for something pretty important, such as staff accommodation and travel and coffee and, that's budgeting. That's no different to home finances, really. But you know, people aren't very good at that either. Yeah, absolutely. So, so regardless of share loss scheme or any anybody books, what are the sort of three or four key tips that you would give to exhibitors when they're starting to think about designing their stand and what they want it to look like? Yeah, um, yeah, that, that's the key, isn't it? Really, I, I think it doesn't matter whether you're a, a, a small engineering company working out of a very small unit in Kettering. No, no offense to Catherine there, by the way. <laughs> or whether you're, you know, Lockheed Martin or, or you know, uh, Total, you're a brand. So I think one of the first rules is, is just remember that. Keep it on brand, however loose or tight that can be, whether you've got brand guidelines or whether the brand guidelines are in your head. Try and keep it on brand. Don't. It's, it's never really a great idea to try and pretend to be something you're not. It can be a bit of a release exhibiting because you can, but that leads you down a certain sort of path of um, theming and gimmicks and then things start to go wrong and it's like well what's this got to do with you know lasers and it it can go a bit strange when you see exhibiting that's gone a bit too far off plot so i think keeping it off brand using themes correctly but sparingly i suppose it sounds a bit pessimistic but sparing use of themes can be a very very good it's, it's sort of easier to flesh it out than pull it back once you've gone too far it's difficult to come back but you can always add a little bit more content there so you see some very good theming, but it needs to be a very strong brand behind it. Otherwise, the values disappear. One bold idea, one strong idea is obviously always a good thing from a psychological point of view. Um, if people walk onto a stand and there's a, um, a simple but clear idea, whether it be a colour or a, a message or a, whatever it happens to be, if you're bold and you're confident in that one idea, that t- confidence tends to exude through to the, to the visitor, which is why you're there. And I think that could be something such as instead of one big plasma, um, instead of going for the obvious, you know, biggest LED or plasma screen we can afford, 55 inch, let's go for two or three smaller ones and repeat the image. Therefore, the, the confidence in repetition has a certain value to the approach and visitor. The instant reaction before you've even thought about it is, well, it must be good because they've repeated it three times. Mm-hmm. That's coming from retail. I saw Nike do that years and years ago with rows of plasma showing the same feed. And you, you don't even necessarily even look at the content you know it must be good because they've repeated it so many times there's a certain sort of recency bias to it and you can understand that you know that might filter its way through to exhibiting and that works really really well with smaller scale av which is effectively cheaper these days than it, than it used to be so it's an accessible thing for shell scheme exhibitors as well as space only um, and then there are a few other things imagery scale context you know it goes back to theming a little bit but you know, using really big faces on stands, smiling faces, happy, joyous people who, you know, I'm not talking about the staff, I'm talking about the imagery. That can be very, very powerful. You know, knocking things into black and white can be powerful for the certain reasons. Um, Changes in scale, things that are out of context. You know, these are all sort of easy psychological triggers that if you can build it again back into the first point about making sure it's still generally on brand, they can be really, really powerful, especially from a distance. When you're changing in scale, you can see something in the distance that looks sort of interesting 40 feet away. You're probably going to take a closer look when you get six feet away. And, it, and that leads to the last one, I would say, which is um, texture and color and detailing. When you're on a stand, you could have a very, very simple stand. Maybe you're the guy who ran out of budget. I don't know. But one or two nice features on the stand that are subtle but visual enough to, to remember, they can be really powerful because it. And that, that could bring me back to my earlier, I just touched on the idea of smell, aroma. You've got an aroma on a stand, whether it be car leather, new coffee, uh, you know, coffee or uh, cut grass or, or something more themed, obviously. Um, that could be a great trigger because your know, factory glands obviously will give you that memory for a long time. And if you could then pick up on that with some post-show advertising or marketing, sorry, to, uh, oh yeah, yeah you, you the guys are the really good coffee or you, know, you were the guys that smelled of, I don't know, medieval rope. You know, it's a tie back into a marketing campaign, isn't it? And as long as it's all considered as a campaign with the show in the middle, not just the show on its own, then you've got some real chance of getting some driving some ROI out of the show. 
But, uh, but yeah, detailing is a really good one. And an example recently, I went to a stand which was very, very plain. Uh, I can't remember what the show was, but it was, it was, I think it was P&M series. I think it was IFSEC. And there was a stand that was very, very simple. I was only there as a visitor walking around, and we hadn't built it. And but it had a really, really nice porthole on the door. And it was um, uh, a sort of teardrop shape, a kidney shape. And I'm a big advocate of quality portals, weird that that sounds. <laughs> and um, it, it, I remember it now. I've just used it as an example, so it must have been good. That was in June. So several <laughs> months later, I remember the quality portal. And it was it was a requirement. You have to have a portal on the door in most shows, especially at IFSEX, health and safety-based show. So um, the fact that you remember it becomes the trigger, doesn't it? It's, yeah. uh, it's those little tiny things, the quality of the detailing on a counters some laminates and backlighting it could be the best 500 quid you spend you might spend 50 grand on a stand or 10 grand on a stand but you know just spending a few hundred pounds on something of that nature could be the, the little trigger that helps you the most so um, yeah detailing is probably a, a really really good one for all scales of exhibitor to choose and, and think about yeah and it's interesting you talk about those small details one thing that we've seen um i think it was a specialty fine food last year so going back nearly 12 months um, and the kind of small exhibitors, small food brands, just wallpapering their stands and then putting up picture frames and some of their messaging in, which you think, you know, if your messaging might change, printing big graphic boards every time is, is pretty expensive. But actually, if you just cleverly use nice picture frames, art picture frames, and, and you can just change the messages every time, it's like, how simple and smart is that from, you know, what's quite a small exhibitor? There was, they hadn't used a big design agency. They'd just come up with it themselves. And it's like, actually, that's the kind of creativity that, that smaller businesses, smaller exhibitors need to, to go with. So Absolutely. And, and to that graphic point, that is the reason, two years ago, why when we started Show Ready, it was specifically tensioned graphics tension fabric graphics based was because you do start to get then a, a, an economy of cost on scale base you've got some large areas of graphic real estate that can really really work well with a great graphic layer can't really be beaten in terms of aesthetics but you're right smaller scale frames is a great idea we I, we did some a couple of years ago i think for a, for a venue i think it was the brewery where that we'd used um, sort of imagery at that scale and it's great because it's interchangeable you can almost mix it up yeah. you've got on jaunty angle there's loads of little things and if you I think if you just get into the mould of thinking about it in those creative terms, it's easy to come up with ideas yourself. As part of, part of a small marketing team, which in, probably involves the sales team that will be on the stand as well, that's always a good idea. Um, yeah, furniture, again, another one. Yeah. You don't go for furniture, fantastic, but you know, maybe you have two different heights of furniture, so you, uh, you give people a choice. As they walk up, they can flop down in the sofa and have half an hour chatting to you. Or if they want to get straight to business, they can perch on the um, stools and be a little bit more, you know, 10 to 20 minute business like. So choice again, you know, a simple, simple. A lot of it is just pure psychology. And, you know, some of it is physics. Yeah. So a mixture of that art and science that really makes it work, really. But, uh, and it, yeah. I think um, one of the good things you were saying, you're just wandering around, you know, not a show that, that you were working on or, or that you anything that you'd built. And that's a really good tip for anybody working in, in exhibitions. It's just go and look at another show that is nothing to do with your industry because then you won't get caught up in the baggage of competitors or suppliers or but just go in something completely different and have a walk around another exhibition and just see what you like, see how quickly you get the messaging, see who who's doing things differently, what was the kind of tech that you like, what was the tech that was completely redundant and irrelevant and, and just get some inspiration really from from other shows. It's quite I guess you do that quite a lot in your job. Um, well I can, but <laughs> It's, no, no, it's terrible because it's an excuse, isn't it? But yeah, we, we do generally as a as a, uh, as a part of uh, the business, we, we do get out to a lot of shows. We see what works and what doesn't work. You're always learning. But you are right. I have to say some of the best stands I've ever worked on, designed, built, um, however you want to phrase it, have been effectively using elements that were taken from other sectors. So, for example, um, water walls, you know, early 2000s, people were using falling water walls a lot to generate imagery in water, and it was fantastic. Don't see it so much now, but it started to come out of automotive into defence and aerospace. Then you see pharmaceutical companies using certain sorts of augment, um, sort of AR, VR sort of side of things. It's become fairly easy to move around uh, in terms of, uh, you know, taking it from sector to sector. But I totally agree. Uh, it's boat shows motor shows they're fantastic they might be completely irrelevant to selling watering cans and paper clips but if you go there and you see something working that's why i use that cross-pollination word it really does sort of allow you to think maybe well if it's working over there for the guy who's just spent 1500 you know pounds per square meter then maybe it'll work for me on a smaller scale and you do find that you know that's the reason why so much technology in cars has come out of formula one 
That is the reason, because so much investment goes back down through the chain. And you could argue it's the same metaphor of trying to spot things in those big hero set shows, Goodwood Festival Speed, whatever it happens to be, and then bring it back to the smaller, slightly more you know, straight-to-the-point shows, trade shows, let's call them, where um, you wouldn't expect that. Yeah. Because the you know the the new to market approach has got a value on its own. It's just something oh that's different. That's fine. Yeah. That's that's really good. Maybe in two years everybody will be doing it to so do it now. Yeah. So it's um, yeah you hang on. Visiting shows is a very very um, it's a very good discipline for any any marketer who's got an event. But it really is uh, even in the, if they're in a different sector. Absolutely, absolutely. So we've been quite positive there, looking at all the um, hints and tips about how to help people. Can you give us two or three things of absolute horrors that you see exhibitors' mistakes that they're still making? A lot of them won't surprise you because they're the, the opposite of some of the things I've said. So, for example, you walk onto a stand and you, well, you, you don't walk onto a stand. You can't get on the bloody stand because, no, oh, actually, I'm allowed to swear. Yeah, um, absolutely. You can't get on the stand because that only just counts. Um, <laughs> you can't get on the stand because there's so much furniture. There's so much interactivity. There's so much content. And there's so many staff. Um, that's a nightmare because you, you really have to make a certain assumption that what you're going to do is work and people will actually want to come onto your stand. And it's very easy to walk around a show and see, um, you know, the exhibitor who's got, you know, 20 to 30 staff on a very large staff, uh, on a very large stand. And you just don't want to go on because you know you're going to get jumped on. It's, you know, this is car phone warehouse technology here and you're just going to get hijacked. So that's a, that's a real no-no for me. Staff sat at the back eating sandwiches playing Angry Birds is, is never going to be great. So staff training is, is a real bugbear. If you're going to send someone to, to a stand to do a job, they need to know why they're there, what not to do. And even if they've been in the business 30 years, they can absolutely still get it wrong. So there's an element of sense to that, but a lot of it actually comes from training for the right reasons and actually uh, sending people there with the right investment of time. Uh, but in more physical terms, over imagery. So there's a certain point where there's just too much going on and it's like walking down Earl's Court Road. There's just way too much red and it just makes you feel hungry too quick. And there's just way too much graphics and uh, what's going on? Messaging that's polluting each other where there's sort of divergent messages on different parts of the same stand that sort of send you in different directions. Again, the corollary of that uh, point I made earlier about one big idea, one bold idea. So getting any of those original benefits, the flip side is, is definitely most of that list. Um, but also, you know, there's there's some basic stuff in terms of human interaction. So, you know, you need staff that are going to walk up to someone and be engaging with them and and, and smile and, and do that sort of stuff. Uh, and that's very, very important because it's, you could have the most fantastic stand in the world. But if there's nobody smiling and available, and that comes down to staffing numbers as well, then you, you've, you've shot it because they're unlikely to walk away with anything unless you've got some sort of really good data interaction there where they can you know touch and connect or take some data away but that's passive you you don't know who's necessarily the quality of that last person who wandered off so i think there's a stand management thing comes back into most of these um and added to the sort of graphic uh, horrors that you see constantly lighting's another one you can have the most fantastic stand but under light it um and it works the other way around as well you can have a pretty ropey stand and light it really really well and make it look okay that's that's a very known trick i don't think that's that's no secret really i think most people understand that lighting is is challenging and it is challenging especially with shell scheme exhibiting because there is only so many um lighting options that you have we've got quite a few now it's grown enormously in the last couple of three years as ges but you know it's it's still it has a limit there's only certain amounts of things you can you can add and do and, and upscale and, and some you can't so by definition you're you're more limited obviously but with even with a space only stand you can uh, you can struggle to light you know large surfaces effectively rather than just spotlighting individual parts yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's, um, it's music to my ears hearing the, the staff training um, point because obviously it's um, some of the work we, we do. And it, it, you walk into some of those training courses sometimes, and you, people who've done exhibitions for years and years, they sat there with their arms folded. You can't teach me anything. I know it all. And it's amazing how, just with a couple of statistics and a couple of videos of things, they very quickly start thinking, Oh, I hadn't thought of it in the visitor's footsteps, actually. I didn't realise that that would make a difference. And actually, I didn't realise saying that wasn't really what a visitor was looking for. And there's so much that you can learn. We've been in exhibitions, you know, 20, 30 years, and you still learn every single time you go to one. So I think that point is really crucial about that staff training, even if your team is saying, yeah, but we know it, we've done this for years and years. There's always something that somebody can learn to just be better understand. Yeah, yeah. So. One really good trick, actually, which is very you very rarely see, that I've mentioned it a few times, is... Um, 
when when you set up, you're finished, you're ready to go home, go to the pub, go to the hotel. Actually do a few walks from the entrance to your stand. See what you see on the way. Is there anything that's polluting your message on the way so that when you get to your stand, something I saw 20 yards ago seems to be, I don't know, interfering with, with, with it. Right. Um, is the furniture in the right position as you walk up or does it stop you getting on? Um, it, does the lighting need tweaking? Um, are there any competitors in certain positions that we just need to make the staff aware of for day one? Because yeah. we can't do anything about them. So awareness becomes the better option then. So just walking through the show as well as around the show, just to see who else is doing what. Um, mm. is a really, really strong one, especially if you're in a show, say at the NEC Hall 5, where you might be a fair distance away from the, um, the entrance. Walk that journey a couple of times with your team just to see, you know, in different ways and converge at the stand, just to see what the approaches are like. Because you can, you can make some last minute, very, very small changes right at the death or even show morning. It's probably better, actually, um, just whenever he's got all their stuff out. So, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a battlefield, isn't it? It's a competitive yeah. environment. You're going to have to win. So um, that's a really nice little easy trick that you can do to, um, to just make sure that even at that 11th hour, you've, you've squeezed everything out of the event you can and mm-hmm. then start you know, trading as such, marketing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great tip. Great advice. And uh, so we've talked um, a little bit about tech. And one of the things that um, frustrates me a little bit when I'm walking around exhibitions is seeing tech for tech's sake. So where people have been um, are using a new bit of VR or AR or whatever it might be, um, because they think it's cool, and, and but it doesn't add any relevance. It doesn't add anything to the customer experience. So what are the good kind of tech trends that you're seeing coming through in terms of any of that kind of AI or augmented reality or virtual realities. Is there anything that you think is, is really going to be the next big thing in exhibitions? Um, those are the main three you see at the moment, without a doubt. Augmented reality, uh, like the first time I used that was on a Citroen stand years ago where we just held up an iPad and it showed a vehicle spinning on a plinth that wasn't actually there. And it, for that show, it was incredible because it was so new to market. They'd invested in it and credit to them. They'd invest in the right thing because it was that sort of wow factor, that instant, ooh, that's cool, cool, cool. And that's great, but it only obviously lasts so long. VR is moving on all the time, and it will get obviously get to a point now where, or very soon, sorry, where it becomes not just more compact, but also faster and more variants. And you can obviously run it as a campaign across multiple shows, and you can share content in different ways. So I'm not, I'm not a tech expert, but what I see is the, the effect. I think that in a way that's almost more beneficial in a way. So you actually see people using that sort of uh, tech. We did a stand at Railtex a few months ago where there was um, a, a VR element to the stand. And in the rail industry, that's really, really interesting because they've taken something very mundane in terms of whatever it happens to be, track laying or, or, or you know, integration with signals or whatever it happens to be. And this is a real nuts and bolts company we were working for. They, they sold stuff, not just services. But they were using it to immerse quite literally in an experience, you know, buyers, buyers who ne- don't necessarily get to wear that headset very often. And for them, going to that show is, a, is you know, this is the rail industry. This is their big moment of the year. This is the show. So, you know, giving them that moment of sort of experiential isn't just to do with actually sending them away to having placed an order, but also sending them back thinking they had a better experience on that stand, which again is where other things such as this, the smell things come back, comes back in. Those other little triggers that I mentioned before. But in terms of tech, um, uh, there are some little things that have sort of sort of coming and going, really. They're not continual. Last couple of years ago, we saw some interesting things with um, products where you can jump up and down and generate energy, which is quite cool. So you can jump up and down on what looks like a floor tile and generate energy. You see a bar rising on a screen, and when it gets to a certain point, take a selfie, and it sends it to your Facebook. Those little sort of things. Nice. I must admit, I've forgotten the brand name, but there's a couple available. It's not just one now. Those are nice little triggers because they generate a certain amount of interest on the sustainability side. Um, it's a bit like running on the spot to get your free tube tickets, which we've seen in various countries. So there's various sort of sort of semi-physical, semi-digital interactives that I think are more interesting, actually, than the, the pure digital stuff. Yeah. Um, touchscreen technology and touchscreens, touch tables, you know, which effectively is just a horizontal version, the minority, minority report style, are still quite popular. And for the right um, products sort of um, x-ray versions of that as well where the screen passes in front of a product and shows the inside of the product it's it's um it's false but it looks very very real yeah and again really nice examples of that but they're they're expensive you know it's not the tech that's the expense it's the it's the back end it's the uh it's the program and it's the setup so there's a real investment of not just you know value but also space and time there as well in terms of uh 
you know, whether it's worth it to, to soak up probably a very large amount of a small budget. Um, could be, but, you know, there's a, there's a real leap of faith there. Um, but in terms of new tech coming through, um, I mean, there's, there's stuff all the time. We, we do a really good event every year called Event Tech Live, which is for our industry where we send, we have our own, you know, um, part in it. We have our own stand and we do our own uh, speaker uh, sort of events and, and, and uh, sort of presentations there. And we're always talking about things, whether it be Giant ITAB or Visit in Poken, which are the, the visit uh, applications that GES run. So they're all to do with a mixture of data. Gamification is a really good one. People playing is great. People people like to win, so give them a chance. You know, people playing games on stands, whether it's collecting information, collecting, you know, people's business cards and data, that's all leading towards a certain element of gamification, which is more to do with reward. And therefore the reward might be information or it might be actually a tangible thing, a marishment. So I think the inter intertwining of uh, physical and digital is really where it's at really at the moment. But it does move on very quickly. This could be completely out of date in six months' time, this little <laughs> because things do move on that quickly. And you've, you've really got to contend with the fact that it's the quickly that is the benefit rather than the fact that it was either in date or out of date. And that's quite yeah. challenging when people expect an industry to know what's coming next, not necessarily. So yeah. it's, um, there's quite a lot going on all the time. And I think the challenge is, um, with you saying things are moving so quickly and we're saying actually to plan an event and exhibition really well kind of takes 12 months. So, yeah. you know, something you might be thinking of doing 12 months ago actually isn't that exciting by the time it comes to show day. So it's just yeah, kind of right. keeping that some in mind. Some of the interaction that I, I again, I'll, I'll say it because I remember it. It's the first one that just came into my head. I was at a show, I think it was a year ago, probably a little bit more. Uh, and a company had uh, an oxygen bar, which was quite, there were flavoured oxygens that you could put a little mask on and, and do a sort of little oxygen thing on the stand. And there weren't many people doing it. I had a go. It's quite weird. I can't remember what the flavour was. Mint, I think. And um, it was it was a memory, wasn't it? You're creating the memory. I do remember what the stand was, and I do remember what they sold. So I guess it worked. So again, as long as it's tied into something underpinned on brand and not too loose and ridiculous, um, then that that can be a great sort of it's, it's technology in the way that you you asked me. But it is tied into that because it's it's there's an element of sort of technicality to it, which is quite memorable in the same way so things like that i think can sort of just hinge on the edge of uh, edge of technology but you are right technology for the sake of it is, is pretty low it's, yeah don't have the biggest screen because you can afford the biggest screen yeah. uh, have the biggest screen because you've got really good content it's not going to pixelate after 10 seconds that's yeah. killer yeah, absolutely and so just um i'm just going to pick up on one point you made there about event tech live so just to let our listeners know, we have a series of event tech live podcasts coming up in November. So we are going to be um, doing an interview with um, the event directors down there talking about the show and what it's doing. And we're also doing um, a podcast with a number of exhibitors as a panel after day one of the show um, to chat about what they found and, and what's new on the show floor. So if you're an event tech live exhibitor in November and you would like to be on our podcast, do get in touch and we would love to invite you along and love doing that down there down in London in November. So um, so just kind of looking at rounding off our conversation, so much advice and um, guidance in there for listeners and for exhibitors, which is fantastic. But can you share with us what has been the most difficult client project you've ever worked on and how did you overcome the big challenge? Uh, sometimes the challenge was the client. <laughs> Very sometimes diplomatic. Sometimes the, client, the challenge was the client's budget and sometimes the challenge was the was the client's project so it's it is quite difficult i mean there are shows that inherently are difficult and the obvious example for me having spent quite a lot of time there is goodwood festival of speed it's not level it's you know i was building stands there with, with a, not just me obviously a big team that were um, you know 20 meters by 20 meters but they were tipping two and a half meters across the corners so you spent a week and a half just leveling the site so there's some operational real hassles on shows like that you you just have to you know get around it's also outdoors so it, when the lightning comes you're all offside there are some you know there's not many of those shows but outdoor jobs specifically can be prone with difficulties as you're probably aware there's been shows last few years which have been rained off after a day yeah. especially you know farm repeater where there's certain, certain you know shows they've had which there's been major major issues so weather's never a friend but in terms of difficult um yeah outdoor challenges aside there have been some, you know, real challenges with geography. So I've built some stands in far off places, you know, stands have got to be shipped out to Tenerife and that sort of thing. Just small events. They're normally more events than, than shows, but they still have the same, the same challenges in terms of 
you know, how the hell are we going to get that done by a certain amount of time or with that amount of people or whatever. So um, the obvious examples, I guess, are, 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 apart from that are, um, are also shows where back-to-back exhibiting is very, very difficult. If you've got a client who just does not have the budget to, to, to create two stands, but the shows are only three days apart, you know, working through the night, um, it's easy as a salesperson, as a commercial person, because you, you're not the guy necessarily who's getting his hands dirty, but um, you, you still feel very responsible. And uh, th- those sorts of uh, events can be very, very challenging from a purely logistical point of view. Uh, and sometimes the brief is just impossible as well. How on earth do we communicate that using that for that product? It's so maybe dissolved away from what the client actually is that telling the client they're wrong, maybe, I hate to use the word wrong, perhaps wrong, becomes the biggest frustration of the project because technically the customer's always right, as we say. Well, yes, but if they're new to exhibiting and they're spending a reasonable amount of money, there's a certain, again, there's a certain bias towards you know, doing what they say, what they, what they say they need or what they want. Even if you know in your heart of hearts they're, they're wrong, sometimes the honesty can be the most difficult thing to get out of the bag. Um, but usually it pays off in the end. So the challenges sometimes can actually be interpersonal in terms of uh, very large teams who can't make decisions is another classic. Um, very, very regular stuff. And there's no, it's nothing personal. It's just some companies just like that. And boardroom decisions can take you know many, many days, weeks or, uh, or months uh, and still not get to a, a full conclusion. So... Uh, yeah, and an intermixture of both physical and emotional challenges, I suppose, really. Yeah, and, and I think just picking up on one of your points there where um, you talk about um, having to tell clients that they're perhaps wrong or misguided or, or whatever, you know, we've talked a lot in the conversation today about um, exhibitors that lack kind of the skills and the confidence and the knowledge to be able to deliver exhibitions really well. But there's a whole bank of people in this industry who have been working on exhibitions for years have seen the problems dealt with them over them, whether it's you as a stand designers and, and you know experiential builders and whether it's us as trainers and consultants you know, wherever wherever somebody is in that that kind of um process there's loads of expertise so if you're an exhibitor who's contracting with an expert to do the job kind of let them do the job and listen to what they've got to say and that sometimes we have some amazing clients who kind of just suck up all the information that, that we give them yeah, there's other conversations we have where people go, yeah, but, but I want this blue elephant that's kind of 15 metres squared on my three metres squared stand. And it's like, well, that's clearly not going to work. But no, well, that's what I want. And you just, if you're employing experts, listen to their expertise, I think is the, that that's kind of what you've engaged us for. It, it is, but, you, but just flipping that around the other way, you, I totally agree, by the way, but there is another school of thought, which is that some of the best ideas sometimes do come from clients because they're not bound with what's gone before. They've not yes. done it before. They have no bias, and that's a really important point because you know any event professional, any exhibition professional who's done it all before, in inverted commas, has only done that before. They haven't yeah. necessarily built the things that didn't get selected. The jobs they lost would have yeah. maybe they would have been better. So sometimes looking at almost loss analysis for a stand builder designer can be very very important because you're obviously looking at it through a different eyes and you're trying to take the personality away from it. Think well, just because we've not done that before doesn't make it wrong. So I think it's the balance of the two, isn't it? It's the balance sure. of the, the naivety of the exhibitor who's not really been through the process, balanced with the sort of complexities of the the, the memory of the, the the company that maybe thinks it's done everything. Yeah. It's never done everything. So it's um, it, yeah, it's a uh, it's it's an awkward balance, but usually that um that can be the best starting point really is to to balance the team really because you are an extension of the client's marketing team. Absolutely, absolutely. So. Coming to the end of our conversation, and um, there's been so much advice uh, in there, so it's um, really, really good chat. I know listeners will have got loads out of it. If you could create an exhibition stand or um, an event or a piece of experiential for any company or brand in the world, who would you choose? It's it's quite a difficult one. I was thinking about this not so long ago, and it's quite challenging because I I used to say Lego, and then I built something for Lego. I did a stand design a couple of Christmases ago for a job that eventually got pulled. And it was actually for a January show and it got pulled right. Well, actually, it didn't get pulled, but we did the job, but the, the concept changed completely. And my nine-year-old son at the time was not happy because this was a Minecraft stand. And Daddy was a hero up until Christmas Eve. And then Daddy was an idiot. Because Daddy <laughs> wasn't a Minecraft stand anymore at bet. And it was uh, it was a horrible, horrible thing to have to say. It was a horrible experience. But um that was really cool. I'd actually really, really like to do something like that, like a Minecraft stand or, or even sort of something through a child's eyes is obviously a really, really good way 
viewpoint, you know, perspective, etc. as well. So that'd be good. Um, Cadbury's, that'd be nice. Get some loads of free chocolate. Uh, but no, brands that are really confident in what they do. And Cadbury, actually Cadbury's for a different reason is a really good example because they've got the colour, they've got the, obviously got the aroma, they've got, you know, various visual idents over you know, 70 years or whatever it is. There's some really strong things to knit into, and that comes back to some of the earlier points of you know how to do it. Also, why would you want to work with them? Is sometimes the same thing. They've they've established that sort of trait of what works, and sometimes that's what you're attracted to is you know um, you know things that have clearly worked for them before. So Cadbury's, those sorts of brands would be great. Um, NASA would be quite cool. Never seen NASA do an exhibition stand. Maybe they have. Perhaps I haven't been to Farmer enough. But you know things that are inherently cool. Drones, teleports. Um, you know, stuff like that, things that are new to market is always really cool. And that drones obviously has become fairly embedded now, but there'll be new variants of that, obviously, with drone delivery. And we've done some stuff with Uber in the last couple of years, Uber Eats. So there's always examples of things that are genuinely interesting and pretty cool because they're new to market. But actually, um, the, the true sort of uh, those best projects, going back to your your uh, point earlier about Game of Thrones and, and you know other media coming into our media into coming into uh, into our domain. So TV coming into uh, exhibiting is always very very exciting because it, you're bringing something in that feels a bit alien, and that's that's obviously always a really nice uh, thing to work on. So yeah, I've done lots and lots and lots of projects as you would expect, but there's still stuff you you don't see, and it's sort of how the hell can we get them to, to start exhibiting NASA? Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's going to be NASA now, isn't it? That's just what I'm going to yeah. be remembered for. So but, NASA, um, if, you, if you're out there and listening, then uh, Andy yeah, is the man yeah. that you speak, you need to speak to. <laughs> yeah, especially if, if, if NASA are looking at doing some sort of Lego Minecraft Cadbury's hybrid, I'm your man. Yeah, I, I'm not kind of sure what that looks like as a product, but, you know, <laughs> let's get creative. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I suppose the, the quick answer is um, that all projects are good. Some, some are gooder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We have no um, covered so much. So, Andy, if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way to find you? Um, various ways in terms of, uh, I'm obviously, uh, I'm on LinkedIn is obviously a great one. That's obviously always good. You can find me on there. Uh, my name, obviously, Andrew Hickenbotham, GES, you'll, you'll find me on there. We can put some links out, I guess, at some stage for, for you guys. Um, I'm always knocking about on LinkedIn, Twitter, that sort of thing. GES, obviously, my name, ahickingbotham at ges.com. Feel free. So any inquiry source, really, um, any of those, I'm sure you can help me push those out through this. But uh, um, yeah, always always keen to hear from people. And it may well be that you have a question which is in no way commercial, but relates to some of the things we've talked about, going back to that sort of moral, social, sustainability thing. Always very happy to, um, to, to assist on that sort of side, even if there's no project in tow. Brilliant. Yeah, we will share your links. Uh, when we publish the podcast but also if anybody uh, wants to get in touch with Andy and uh, doesn't know how then of course give us a shout and we will um, help out so thank you so much for speaking to us today good luck with everything you're doing what's your next big event that you're working on um September yeah. <laughs> everything <laughs> so, kicks off again in September everything kicks off in September and the, the really big events tend to be you know bet in January and, and there's lots and lots of them but uh, they run throughout the year but yeah, August is supposed to be nice and quiet. And then we're back into September, October, November, where it's really busy, some type of Christmas. So uh, no no one big event because they, they, they all grow, which is great. Definitely no complaints. So uh, lots of really good Q3 and Q4 shows coming up. So um, I would urge people to get out there and visit them, and as we said earlier, and to see what's working well. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time. Good luck with all of that. And we will speak to you again in the future. No problem. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, hopefully you found that conversation inspiring and interesting. Andy's certainly a guy with a lot of experience and a lot we can all learn from. So hopefully you found that useful. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. And our next podcast is with uh, Deal Felton, who is the CEO of Vespa. And if you're not sure of who Vespa are, they are a trade association for the print industry, to put it simply. Um, and we're looking at exhibitions from the perspective of trade associations and how they can help, but also asking Neil about his role with the AEO and the benefits that the AEO, AEO bring to the exhibition industry. As we've mentioned in the newsletter and on previous podcasts, we are about to embark on a huge piece of research 
with actually quite an interesting research partner. So stay tuned to find out who that's going to be. But if you'd like to be part of our research program, then please do get in touch and we can add you to the list to send you the questionnaire and get in touch with. As always, there's more useful advice, hints and tips over on the website, which is www.inspiringexhibitors.com. And if you can't find what you're looking for there, there is uh, many ways to get in touch with us via Twitter, LinkedIn and email, which you can find on the website. As we sign off for this week, it's just to say when we come back in two weeks time, it will actually be our first birthday of the podcast, our 25th episode. So we may be doing that one with a little bit of champagne. So apologies if we sound a bit slurry on the next one. But if you need anything, anything in the meantime, please do get in touch and happy exhibitioning. Hop over now to inspiringexhibitors.com to subscribe to our newsletters, blogs and future podcasts keeping you up to date with industry insights. While there, you can also find out more about our new book, The Exhibitionist, Inspiring Trade Show Excellence. Once again, thank you for listening.